Good morning and welcome Welcome to episode 87 of the Jaguar Report podcast. My name is Gus Logue, joined as always by my co-host John Shipley. John, how's it going on this beautiful January afternoon? It's going good, buddy. Do I uh, do I have you to thank for putting me up there with uh, Mel Kuyper and Daniel Jeremiah in terms of whose mock drafts carry some weight? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That was me that made that graphic. I thought, I thought that there were four mocks that had a cornerback recently Dane and i was Ruger. trying to think like Dane I, I had a lock yeah but he he gave them brian smith from lsu yeah so somebody asked me they were like brian. would you really would you really give them cooper the gene whatever the hell that iowa dude's name is over kool-aid mckinstry and that's not everybody now have not watched a single snap of a soul <laughs> other than like positional takes i have zero takes i anybody's selling and when i put out a mock draft ask me why i mocked that player i i don't know man <laughs> just, just, yeah just, literally just in, in that graphic we were just talking about it like i ended it saying like which which player would you want and i was like i don't even know how i would answer this let alone I, yeah ask what haven't, fans haven't haven't seen haven't seen this app i i get more into breaking down the draft closer to the combine because i I just hate having takes on players without athletic testing available because I can watch a player and I can think he rules. And then if he tests like a slug, I'm going to feel complete opposite way about him. So I normally wait until the combine to start really delivering takes. But I know when the draft starts early, people people want to hear that. (laughs) Right away, yeah. but we still have so much to talk to talk about. Though I mean, we can do a little review of the 2023 season in terms of like going player by players. I definitely want to look at Antonio Johnson specifically, uh, but there's a lot of interesting potential fits for the next year, considering the Jags officially hire their next defensive coordinator, Ryan Nielsen, who coordinated the Falcons defense last year. John, what was your immediate takeaway when you saw the news? It's the best coordinator hire the Jaguars have made in my time covering them. And I've seen them hire John DeFilippo, Jay Gruden, Joe Colon, um, Mike Caldwell, uh, who else? Daryl Bevel, Press Taylor, et cetera. Nielsen, to me, is by far, I think, the best. I think it's an A-plus hire. I think it's a home run hire. I I mentioned this in – the story I did yesterday, my observations about it. But I think the biggest thing about hiring him is the fact that they were able to bring him in when so many other teams were potentially looking at him. I know there's a lot of smoke about Jesse Minter following Harbaugh to the Chargers, but the Chargers wanted to talk to Nielsen. I believe the commanders also want to talk to him. Like teams that don't even have a head coach yet wanted to talk to him. Like he was a super sought after guy. The Eagles, I'm pretty sure, you know, were, were linked to him. So super sought after candidate, and there's what still five to six head coaching, you know, roles open plus the coordinator roles in Philly and the Giants, etc. There were a bunch of places this guy could have gone to, a bunch of places he could have been the first name on the list. I think the Jaguars hit a home run. I, I really don't have anything like negative to say about the hire, and I think I probably would have had some. Like any other hire out of their candidates, I think I probably would have gave like a B plus at best. Like I would have had some questions. Uh-huh. I don't have any questions about him. Like Ryan Nielsen or Shane Bowen. Like, like come on, man. Like <laughs> look, look in their coordinator pool. 
he's by far the best guy they were able to hire, I think. So I, I think it's a home run. I mean, what, what was your immediate reaction? Yeah, mine was just two thumbs up. I thought it was the best hire that they could have made. I agree with you there. I think the take that it's the best hire, just coordinator hire they've made in the past five plus years is a good take too. But I, I didn't even get that far. I just thought of the available pool, especially like you said, like considering not that I had like the inside information, but like I feel like it was pretty well known how well liked Ryan Nielsen is. And so like the only question I feel like I have is that the question mark around him would be his experience because he's been in the league for seven or eight years now, but he's only called plays as a defense coordinator for one. And so like in that one year, he did get really good results and it's not like they were like buoyed up by turnovers or anything like that. Like turnovers is actually one of the few metrics that the Falcons didn't do well on last year defensively, but like still like it's just a one year sample. And so like, there's going to be some question marks around that. Uh, but, like, really, my, my biggest question mark is, like, why did he choose Jacksonville? Because he was well sought after. And so, like, <laughs> maybe he just, like, wanted to, like, make sure he did have a coordinating job. Maybe he, like, saw an opportunity to be a head coach down the road. Maybe he saw some players and said, like, oh, I can really go to work with that, especially standout guys like uh, Josh Allen. But, yeah, I think it's almost interesting to, like, think of, like, the other side of the story sure. of, like, yeah, it's great that the Jags got him because he seems like the best candidate. But what what made him what made him make that decision? What made him sign on? I think he's a future head coach, honestly. Like just seeing everything players and coaches have said about him, even dating back to his NC State days, like that he's developed some. Like Bradley Chubb, he developed uh, Trey Hendrickson, he developed Cam Jordan has basically called him the best coach he's ever had. Grady Jarrett has called him one of the best coaches he's ever had. Like. You're not going to see anybody say a bad thing about him, man. That wasn't uh, entirely the case for all of the candidates. So he, he I, I, I think he's like a like a future head coach, you know, wh- wherever that might be. So maybe that'd be my biggest question. How sure are you that this can't be just like a one year, you know, thing, and you're not just backed? You know, if they have a say, they have a good defense this year, like a really good defense. Who's to say he wouldn't be a hot candidate in the 2025, you know, coaching cycle? Because you're starting to see defensive coordinators catch up a bit with offensive coordinators in the last year or so in terms of getting interviews. I, I've seen a lot of people like say how much of his success was NFC South based, and I, I, I just think it's a ludicrous point. Like he, he how much of Bill Belichick's success was was AFC East based? Like. like it, it's six. It's six of seventeen games. Like they have eleven other games, and also, you can't tell me he was successful because the NFC South had bad quarterbacks, and then tell me from the same mouth that you think Baker Mayfield is a good quarterback. Like, come on, it's, <laughs> it, it's got to be one of the two. You know, <laughs> Derek Carr is a guppy. I'll concede that. Bryce Young. It's probably physically unsafe for him to play quarterback. I concede that, but come on. Either Baker sucks or he doesn't. I I, I need some consistency from, from the peanut gallery on that one. For sure. No, I, I think the point you made, you made two good points. And the first is that like the players and the coaches previously, especially the co- players have really good things to say about him. And I used to be like kind of what I feel like a lot of owners or general managers were in the past five years where I was like all about the offensive guys and like really more so just about like the X's and O's and about like, my big thing, like, I would have said, like, the first thing I would look for in a head coach even a year ago would be, like, adaptability. Because, like, we've seen, especially with, like, cover three type defenses recently, like Gus Bradley in Indy, uh, Dan Quinn in Dallas, that, like, 
even uh, Schwartz in Cleveland, like they've all been like bounced by the playoffs early, partly because like their defensive structure is just like we do what we do and we just kind of like make sure we coach it really well, but we don't really adapt too much game to game. And so like you can't really have that, especially on the defensive side of the ball with like how good quarterbacks are nowadays. And so I think that like myself, but also just a lot of people around the league have kind of like come around on that opinion where obviously being able to adapt is like a huge attribute that you definitely need. But right now I would say the number one thing that I would look for is like how well they're able to like build relationships with players, coach players, motivate players. And so I think you're going to see like a lot more of like the, even though Vrabel doesn't have a job yet, uh, like people like Vrabel or Mike Tomlin or John Harbaugh, like those CEO types, I feel like are going to kind of come back. And I feel like more often than not, just like defensive guys, like, become CEO types more often than like a McVeigh or a Shanahan. Like they're just going to keep being boy genius play callers. Oh no, hundred percent. And I I think that's the big thing. Like you want your coordinators to be the good X and O's guys, I think. And you want your head coach, at least in my opinion, in most cases to, you know, like I know everybody looks at Sean McVeigh as like a boy genius of play calling, which he is, but I, you know, you go back to what Andrew Whitworth said about him a few weeks ago, and he, it's clear that his value to the Rams goes so far beyond X's and O's, you know. But I, I do think at the very least, like this hire is a strong move towards fixing a lot of the issues that the Jaguars had defensively. Like, I mean, we can just start with so the Jaguars ran like a lot of five man odd fronts under Mike Caldwell. Almost entirely zone coverage. They were one of the least like heavy man coverage teams in the NFL. They rarely pressed. Nielsen comes from the Dennis Allen school of thought where he wants to play press man. He wants to play a lot of cover on one. He wants to play with like four man fronts and he wants to be able to stop the run with a lighter box as opposed to basically, you know, Mike Caldwell's thing was stop the run and force them to pass. It feels like Nielsen kind of same like cut from the same cloth in a way but he wants to do it differently you know he doesn't want to overload the field with a bunch of down linemen so i think at the very least like the most underperforming unit of the jaguars last year was the interior defensive line right yes all right so i'd say at the very least nielsen will be a godsend for guys like devon hamilton who will be even further removed from you know the back abscess that he had last year uh guys like tyler lacy who he only played 15 percent of the snaps last year he'll probably see a bigger role just by the economics of the team next year he'd probably be big for him uh war robson harris and fully fatakasi those are older guys we'll see you know how they fit in but then trayvon walker i i i think he could be like the key to unlocking trayvon walker and yeah I don't even know if it has to do that much with moving him inside or out. I'm not sure how much I'll actually do that, but Nielsen likes to play with heavy ends. You know, Cam Jordan in the New Orleans, Calais Campbell last year, Trayvon's cut from that same cloth. You know, Trayvon is that exact type of guy. He just obviously needs to refine some technique stuff. I think having him as like a down lineman in this kind of scheme and with Nielsen specifically having like his fingerprints all over his development, I think it's probably the best thing that's happened to Trayvon Walker since he became a Jaguar. Like that, that to me is where I think you will see the difference with the Nielsen hire. And just overall, I think you'll see a more physical and a more consistent 
defensive front because, I mean, the Jaguars at times were great at stopping the run under Caldwell, and then there were other times where it just it, it fell apart. Like, I, it, yeah. I don't think they were always the most physical, you know, team in the trenches, I think I'd say. I mean, go back to week 18. Tennessee was much more physical than them, and Tennessee had a bad offensive line. I think that's where Nielsen would kind will kind of put his stamp, and that he'll have them playing more consistent and tougher up front than they did in last year and the year prior. Yeah, apparently Nielsen's whole thing. There was a clip going around on Twitter of a quote where his like whole defensive philosophy is attack and be aggressive, and so I feel like that'll like potentially help a lot of the young players, like not just Trayvon Walker, but like guys like Devin Lloyd or even Tyson Campbell and Andre Cisco to like be able to just like play fast. Cause I think that's a lot of, that's like a big thing that coaches say when they're complimenting defenses is like, Oh, that those guys like play fast and they just like go right to the ball and they're just flying around. And so I think like, there's like, I, you specifically have pointed out like kind of like the difference in Trayvon's get off when he's has like is lined up in a two point stance as opposed to a three point stance with a hand in his dirt. And so, like, obviously, if he gets his hand in his hand in the dirt a little bit more, then he could be better. But even like on a bigger scale, just like having the, those guys kind of like think less and attack more would be good for the defense as a whole. One hundred percent. I'm glad you mentioned Devin Lloyd because he's another guy who I think could benefit. Like to me, if, if Devin Lloyd can't turn into that guy in year three, then I think you got to start asking the question like, when slash can he? You go back and look at like Atlanta's linebackers, you know, they Caden Ellis, Nathan, I think Landman, like they obviously weren't the talents or the names that the Jaguars had. They made more impact plays. You know, they, I think six sacks between the two of them, I think 17 tackles for loss, three forced fumbles. He puts the linebackers in position to make plays. A lot of, you know, sugaring the A gaps, you know, bringing the linebackers up to the A gaps and just those double mug looks. I think. If there's a scheme that can get production out of the front, including the inside linebackers, I would think it's this one compared to some of the other ones we were saying because they they need the, they they need to start seeing that production out of Devin Lloyd. I mean, he has two tackles for loss in his career, so <laughs> that, that 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 switch needs to come on, you know, eventually. And it it like the light bulb was like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like fizzling. Flickering. Yeah, the light bulb was flickering. You know, you had to tap it a few times in like the first half of the year. Yeah. And then it just it, it it just went dark the second half of the year. So I think Devin Lloyd is somebody who could benefit a lot from him. But then on the flip side, where I think the most questions are, and I thought that you had a really good stuff on this in the last episode is the cover scheme. It a lot of people have asked, like is Nielsen the kind of coach who he'll change like his scheme for his players? I mean, just looking at the numbers from Atlanta's defense, like them and the Saints are like right next to each other and like man coverage snaps, press coverage snaps. Like so, no, you know he's yeah. he's gonna run what he knows, and it's up to the Jaguars now to fill the roster around his scheme. To me, the hiring of Nielsen, I already thought cornerback was a big need both in the present and the long-term, I think hiring Nielsen, it, that ramps it up like a couple, a couple of degrees, honestly. Like I, I think cornerback yeah. is right up there with interior offensive line as one of the biggest needs right now. Cause in the long-term, 
the only two guys you have on the contract in 2025 are Monteric Brown and Christian Braswell, who we've never seen Braswell play a game. And Brown, we're not even sure how he would transition to a scheme like this. I, The data when he plays would suggest that he's better in zone. And honestly, his physical build would kind of suggest that. And then in the short term, they got questions to ask now. I think, you know, I – Tyson Campbell obviously is going into a contract year, his fourth year. He's going to be starting, you know. Like I, I don't think like that's a, a question, but how well he transitions to the scheme and whether he's a long term guy, I think, can be a question. They don't really have a slot. Like, I mean, they're playing a man covered scheme, and people want Antonio Johnson in the slot, and you know. God bless their hearts, but <laughs> it, it's just like <laughs> asking way too much out of them. And, you know, Trey Herndon, one, Trey Herndon isn't on the roster. Two, he's definitely not a man, you know, cornerback. And then you have Darius Williams, who he's coming off the best year of his career. He was probably the best defender not named Josh Allen on the roster. But he is in that time of his, you know, career where, you know, James Bradbury was 30 this year, and he just fell off a cliff. Darius would be 31. It happens. It, w- would it surprise you if he just randomly went from a Pro Bowl caliber season to being a replacement level player? It wouldn't surprise me. And then you factor in the fact the scheme fit. He's a smaller guy. He's not very good and run support when left on an island. We just kind of saw that in the last two years. Teams would try to run at him. Uh, he's built more for zone than for press man coverage. And then you add on the fact that he has one of the easiest contracts like to get out of. You know, they saved $10 million and only a $500,000 dead cap hit. Like, if he was bad this year, that'd be the easiest cut to make. The only reason it's not is because he just had a good year. So that's where I'm at with the cornerback room. It's, I got a lot of questions about the cornerback room right now. They, I think they definitely need to restock it for the scheme that they're going to have to run, which not necessarily a bad thing, I don't think. I'm pretty interested to see how often they do one high versus two high because I think that's one thing that did change a little bit from New Orleans to Atlanta. I mentioned it last week where I think, like, I totally agree with you where, like, Nielsen is running, like, his scheme. But I think, like, he is still able to, like, kind of, like, adapt players into his scheme based on his players' strengths. Like, the Saints are a big uh, 4-2 or 4-3 team where they have four defensive linemen. And I feel like the Falcons kind of like switched it up a lot more with like just multiple fronts rather than sticking sticking to one personnel package a lot, which the Saints like to do. And like, as I think you said last week, the Falcons had kind of like built their defense around being a 3-4. And then like Nielsen came in with his 4-3 slash multiple front defense and were able to get good production out of like that front. Um, but then like Jesse Bates coming in, he's like arguably the best pre-safety middle field guy in the NFL. And so the Falcons, I think we're still a little bit, like ran a little bit more too high than one high. Yeah. Uh, but like they definitely ran more one high coverages than the Saints did. And so I think that it'll be interesting to see like with like Andre Cisco and the Jaguars, do they think, does Nielsen think that Cisco has similar traits to Bates and can just be like that center fielder? like almost like Earl Thomas where you just have one guy deep and mm-hmm. like have him do everything, which is an extremely difficult job. Cause like, I think Cisco has shown that he has the range, but like he just needs to be more consistent in terms of like uh, 
understanding like play recognition a little bit faster. Not that he's bad at it, just just to become a Jesse Bates, Earl Thomas type who can actually be trusted to be like that single high safety for the majority of snaps. So I'm interested to see if they go that route or if they say like Andre Cisco, we don't really see as like a single high all the time safety and or we don't really see like Tyson and Darius being able to live on islands outside because like there's a way bigger difference in playing man coverage with two safeties over the top versus one because with one safety over the top, like you're essentially just like one-on-one because if the receiver that you're following runs like a route on the sideline, then like there's an extremely slim chance that the safety is going to get there to help in time. Even if his name is Earl Thomas in his prime, Uh, but like having two safeties makes like playing two man and like, trail technique uh just like a lot easier and so i think like trail technique and playing with uh safety over the top like tyson could do well in that and even thrive in that but if like they're gonna trust tyson to live on an island outside and darius to live on an island outside and cisco to live on an island in the middle like i don't know if they really quite have the horses needed to do that so um, i think i think like the single high versus two like split safety looks is going to be like kind of a big tell. Yeah, no, I, I I think that's a great point, and I, I'm with like there's definitely instances I think where Tyson is maybe built more to play like this kind of scheme, like at least physically, you know, like he has the size. Yeah, he's he always, yeah, yeah and he's obviously a great run defender. I think the biggest thing with him is just like the fluidity, you know, being able to stay with guys, you know, downfield. I think. I don't know. It's probably hard to judge him. I, I keep coming back to the T. Higgins route against the Bengals, where Higgins basically sent him to Baker County and <laughs> like on, on the break. But then again, he was injured. But I, I, I'm, I do think Tyson has a little bit of an easier fit. Darius is just a tough one for me, man. He's five foot nine, 185 pounds. I mean, you look at the guys that Atlanta had, you know, AJ Terrell. Jeff Okuda, like they just, Darius doesn't look like them, you know? So I'm, I'm interested to see what happens. I think my biggest thing is that you need to address cornerback either way. Like regardless of who you hired, you, I think you needed to restock the cornerback room and fans are so stuck on this. I'm I'm ready to stop talking about the draft and we're on January 23rd because Fans are so stuck on this offensive line thing, man. And it is brutal to me. I, I understand their offensive line stunk. I agree it's their biggest need. There are seven rounds in the draft, and there's also this thing called free agency, which you think Jags fans would be more accustomed to considering how often they try to build a team through free agency. You, you don't need to – like any team that like goes into a draft and says, okay, we're leaving the first round with an offensive lineman, you probably suck. Like you're probably a terrible, terrible team and a terrible GM because the first round, especially, you need to just let the draft come to you and you need to take where there's value. And there's a very, very real chance the value at number 17 will be a cornerback who, if they keep Darius and a rookie cornerback plays slot cornerback and steps into a starting role next year, that's still great value. You know, if you're like you're getting a starting cornerback. Yeah. Or otherwise, you can go the other route that Jackson been going and throwing darts in the sixth and seventh round at Gregory Jr., Buster Brown, Christian Braswell, Eric Hallett. Looks like a 25% hit rate, and that hit is a backup 
quality <laughs> player. You know, it's not like it's not like they found the wrong bland or something like that. Yeah, so, or like the Chiefs finding Justin Watson. Exactly. And I'm glad you mentioned the Chiefs. They're an example of how you can fix your interior line without using the first round pick. Creed Humphrey was a 62nd overall pick. Trey Smith was a sixth round pick. Um, I, I feel like I'm going crazy, dude. That like I, I legitimately feel like fans would rather take the draft's seventh best offensive lineman. And if he was like a bottom of the second round player in the first round, then take a first round corner just so they can say, okay, we picked an offensive lineman. And I think it's completely asinine. It's making me want to pull my hair out every time I tweet about it. And when they do, slash if they do, I got a little cocky there for a second. Take your corner at number 17 overall. I'm going to streak butt-ass naked across the TL saying I told you also the same way I said two years ago that they're taking an edge rusher after they tagged Cam Robinson. Everybody said, no, they're taking Evan Neal. What, you, come back water. No, they telegraph these things. And to me, especially hiring Nielsen, I feel like cornerback is the most probable pick. Like just looking at like, the economics of the NFL draft. You don't need to take a center at 17 overall, dude. You don't. I had somebody yeah. tweet at me yesterday that like four or five other teams might need a center, and they included the Titans, who pick in the top 10. It's worked me up, man. I, no, I, hate no, it. No. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Go ahead. Not all fans, but definitely a lot of fans, I think, have just like kind of – like solidified the facts that like interior linemen is the top need for the Jaguars, which I know that you're like agreeing with them that, yeah, but then I think I'm just like a lot of the like, Oh, this is our top need. Like that automatically means that like, this is the first position that we should pick. But now like, like I feel like I shouldn't even say like, I agree with you. Cause like, there's nothing to agree about. Like you're just right. We're like, like for the draft, like any team that's like going in saying we're definitely going to draft this one position is like an idiot. Cause like you said, you need to like let the board kind of like follow you or let the board breathe at least. And then there's also this thing called free agency. Like that's like what you breathe. like free agency. The point of that should be to like, that's where you get the depth. That's where you like, kind of like put, put in like the like small missing pieces around your roster. Like a so third you can do whatever back, you want running back. So that you can take a cornerback or an edge rusher or whatever in the first round. Yeah, um, it, I'll be honest with you guys. It's at the point where I hope they take a Billy Price level center at seventeen overall, and I hope he is the worst center in the NFL. That's how annoyed I am. <laughs> I, no, I, I, yeah, yeah. Take, take your center, please. Take a. I hope a center is drafted before seventeenth, and they take the second center, and he's like a fourth round prospect. That's what I'm rooting for at this moment. That's how. Ugh. Stupid, Gus. Yeah, stupid. no, it's stupid. Yeah. Uh, the draft is just, uh, it's just like a and, living creature that needs to. And here's my thing. Do people think taking an offensive lineman at 17 overall instantly makes them good? Billy Price happened. Cam Irving happened. Garrett Bradbury was like the 21st overall pick. Like the hit rate on centers is like 50% right now. And that 50% includes guys like Cesar Ruiz, who's just okay, and Travis Frederick, who his career lasted a handful of years. Like I he was really good. And then he got injured a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was really good. He was really good. But I, <laughs> he was I, think you, I think you have just as much of a chance as taking a, you know, a Billy Price or a Garrett Bradbury or, or Cam Irving as you do a Frank Ragnow. Like I think Frank Ragnow is like the exception. You know, 
Yeah, totally. And like him and uh, Linderbaum, like I feel like Linderbaum is like the only first round center in like my recent memory. I know you just like listed it off a bunch of them, but like before you did, like Linderbaum was the only first round center I could think of that's like been a good pick. And he was considered like the consensus best lineman in that draft. And he's still. Yeah. And like he like fell to the Ravens in like the 20s or something. Like everyone was expecting him to be get picked in the mid teens. Yeah. That's. I. I, I think it was this morning. Yeah, he was the 25th overall pick. Like, come on, dude. <laughs> I think it was this morning especially. Somebody was like, Jags for 30 years. We can find interior offensive linemen in the other rounds. Jags for 30 years. Why does our offensive line suck? Like, you know what? No, that's not why their offensive line sucks. Their offensive line sucks because you pick bad interior offensive linemen in the other rounds. You still have to pick good players. And you can very easily pick a bad player at number 17 overall. I, I'm, I'm taking it out. On you, Gus, because you're you're now here. You're I'm just I'm just here to spectate. Yeah, I'm. God, dude, I worked myself into a fit this morning about it. Dude. I like woke up because my dogs had to be let out. I uh-huh. checked Twitter, saw people crying about cornerback, and went five to several of them, and then went back to bed for like an hour. And I was like, God, what is wrong with me? The thing I, is, it's not just you. Like we were talking about the graphic I made for ten ten at the top of the show, and like Daniel Jeremiah, who's very plugged in, and who made the other mod. Mel Kuyper. Mel Kuyper, who's Mel freaking Kuyper. Like, they both took cornerbacks in the first round. And so like, – Dane, Dane Brugler, by the way, gave them a receiver. So, I'm waiting for that first mock draft that gives them a guard or a center. I, I, I want people now to start telling me, which player specifically are you talking about? Like, who are you suggesting to take there? The Oregon guy who – I haven't seen a snap, but everything I've seen has him projected as like a 45 to 50th range guy. Okay. Definitely like I, I was going to say like early second round probably. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Cor- corner is a giant need. Gus, go ahead and write the hot take down right now. <laughs> On January 23rd, 2024, I proclaimed the Jaguars will draft a corner at number 17 overall. Mm. Write it down. Right. Don't ask me who. Can't can't tell you a thing about any of them, but not not the Iowa guy, right? No, every no no everything I've read, he seems like everybody's like he's really good. Just don't play him in man coverage. <laughs> so yeah, yeah every, every, everybody but him. Which I, I think met, like Mel Kiper plus his heart. He's not trying to do scheme fits, you know. So he he had the right idea. Yeah, he, he's like here are all the players that like are gonna land where I think they're gonna land, and like team fits that make a little bit of sense. Yeah, so. But, yeah, like you said, it's not just me, man. Multiple people are saying that yeah. cornerback is a huge need. And fans have just made this offensive line issue such a boogeyman issue. And when March comes around and they sign a veteran center and they sign a veteran guard and they sign a veteran defensive tackle, I want I, I want answers, Gus. I, I want answers. No, I thought you had to take one in the first round. You know, <laughs> I, I, I want answers. I want people brought to my feet. I am curious. I was going to ask, what do you think the percent chance is that – Luke Fortner starts week one in 2024 because like, like everyone and their mother and their brother is like mocking a center. if not in the first round, like at some point in the first three rounds. And like, I feel like I just like can't shake the idea that like they really might go into next season, like without addressing the position whatsoever. So like, what, what's your feeler on that? 25%. Okay. I think, I think they're going to try to upgrade the spot. I, I think Doug, going to bat for Luke at his last press conference, like the day after the season ended. I I think that was just coach speak. Like I 
I, I think they're going to try to upgrade from Luke. I think they know that he's a, he's a big reason that they struggle running the ball internally, even if they'll never actually say it out loud. Yeah. That's that's at least my feel on it. So, yeah, I guess we got anything else before we take some some questions. Thank you no, for letting me that. That <laughs> No, I knew you had to get it off your off your chest just based on the timeline of the past 24 hours, really 12 hours. But yeah, yeah. no, it's some questions. You're a good friend. All right. We're going to cut for an ad break real quick, and then we'll be right back to take your questions. Well, in the 90 seconds <laughs> since the ad, <laughs> something has came up, but all of your questions will be answered either in a mailbag or on the next Jaguar Report podcast episode. But we got everything we needed to get in on Ryan Nielsen. Gus, you got any other takes on the hire? In my opinion, it's an A+. Yeah, I don't really have any takes. I'm obviously excited to see what the personnel looks like next year, who they could bring in. Uh, I think everyone's like talking about Calais Campbell, obviously, since there's a lot of connections there. But I think Jeff Okuda would be an interesting free agent to bring in because like Okuda was like traded from the Lions to the Falcons after Nielsen was hired. So like clearly Nielsen thought he was a good scheme fit for what he wanted to do, and he was certainly not one of the best cornerbacks. Uh, in the league last year, but he wasn't one of the worst. And so I think it would be interesting to give him like a one year prove it deal, assuming he's not going to get much in the market. But Dupree. See, I saw that name, but like, I feel like, has he done yeah. anything for like three years? He had six and a half sacks this year. Oh, that's not bad. Number three edge guy. I mean, I think he'd be an upgrade over Smoot and Chase on. Like, I think you're not, Ideally, in the year 2024, you're not signing him to be a starter, you know. Yeah. But I feel like he'd upgrade the rotation quite a bit. I mean, I have my reservations because, again, I'm not really sure what he's done recently. But six and a half sacks, like, sounds good on paper. And so, like, I, like, I think they definitely, uh, like, veteran edge, whether it's bringing Smoot back, bringing Calais in, bringing Dupree in, like, they definitely need a big body. So I, I, I could see the fit for sure. Had 38 total pressures last year. Yeah. Yeah. Probably more than all but two Jaguars. Yeah, well, yeah. That's that's fair enough. Let's see. He trying to find his win rate. I I can't find it. Well, regardless, he he was a better pass rusher last year than Smoot and Chase on. I think he'd be an interesting guy. Calais, another guy who's up there. I I think Okuda, like you said, is a name to watch. Damn it. Now they're going to decide Okuda and like Rock Yassin or something. And my hot take yeah. is going to be out out the door. So now I'm, I'm holding the line. They, why are you signing <laughs> I mean, Okuda? If, if they sign Okuda and keep Williams, like they could slash should still draft a cornerback 17th overall. Like I, I wouldn't roll it out. I don't like. I, I don't know. I'm, they could even like cut Darius after the draft, which I feel like that never happens. Like either going to cut someone when the league year begins, or like pretty much that, right when the season is about to begin. But I think the biggest disconnect has been Darius. Like so many people saying, "What What are you doing with Darius? He just had a great year." And I don't think anybody would deny that. But one scheme fit, two age, three money. Literally, all three of those things are working against him. You know, like, I, yeah, 
even if they kept him on the roster, is Darius Williams on this roster past 2024? I don't think so. No. So he just thinks because like he had a great year last year and he's a hometown guy. Yeah. And it's the business. Yeah. It is. It yeah. is the business. I'm definitely right, more. Well, concerned. I, I will say I'm more concerned about his age and his contract than his scheme fit. Cause like, yeah, it's like not a perfect scheme fit, but I think like with Williams, like the generalization you can make about his game is that like what he lacks in size and physical attributes, he makes up for with his noggin and mental attributes. And he's just a really sharp player who's really good with technique and all that stuff. And so I think he like could end up working out like, okay in the scheme, but if his body starts to fall off or like they find an option that's makes more sense resource wise. Then yeah. yeah. I done. Before we go, Tom Telesco, it, Ian Rapport says is expected to be the new Raiders general manager. Yeah. So. Right? Yeah, so another another AFC GM for Bulky to shove in a locker. And okay, but before we go, it feels like a solid eighty-five percent of our questions that we were supposed to feel <laughs> were yeah. about uh, Trent Bulky dysfunction, etc. I I got a few things to say on this. One, okay, from my knowledge, conversations I do know that Trent Bulky was extremely high on Ryan Nielsen, which. He should be, but, you know, obviously props to him. I also know that a lot of people in the building expected Marquand Manuel to be one of the leading candidates, if not the leading candidate, just because of his familiarity familiarity with Doug Peterson. I've seen a lot of people wonder, did Trent want one and Doug want the other? I'll say this. I don't know, but it wouldn't be uncommon. NFL GMs all the time all involved in coordinator hires and coordinator searches. It is not uncommon because it's an organizational move. You know, it's not Doug Peterson's move and it only affects him. It's an organizational move. It impacts free agency. It impacts the draft. So it makes sense for a general manager to be involved, you know? So I don't know, you know, who wanted who, anything like that. But I do think maybe things are getting a little overblown to the extent of people are saying, you know, why is Trent having any say in defense coordinator hire? Well, he should have say in defensive, you know, coordinator hire. At least, at least, you know, in my opinion. So that is that's where I, you know, kind of stand on that. And this isn't like a source thing. This is just a human nature thing. Like, say you're Doug Peterson, you're entering a critical year. Would you rather hire the guy you know, who you know isn't a threat to you, or a guy you've never worked with who? a guy that you do work with is going to bat for. Like it's understandable from a human nature standpoint, I think, you know what I'm saying? No, I think so too. It's just a shame that like, that's the way that every coach and general manager and like big head in the NFL does think rather than like, just what can we do to win? And like, it makes sense because like, there's such a short shelf life or whatever in the NFL where it's not for long, but then also just like in terms of like the changes that we see in coaches staff, Coaching staff is, oh my gosh, coaching staffs in front offices and rosters. Like, there's just so much turnover uh, and everything happens so quickly. It's just a little bit of a shame that coaches, like, understandably have to kind of like look out for themselves rather than look out for the franchise. If you put in context how many moves are about 
self-preservation as opposed to trying to build a winning franchise, a lot more moves make sense. You know, draft, agency, hires, mm-hmm. you know, like these dudes are ultimately trying to protect themselves. Last thing before we go, keep an eye out for Jerry Gray. I've been told that him and Nielsen became like they had never worked together before last year, but they became really close last year in Atlanta. He has a great track record for, um, you know, developing defensive backs, both in Minnesota and in Green Bay. He's a really good players coach, and he's a former coordinator. So having two guys on staff who really know things from that perspective, I don't know if he's coming to Jacks, but I have been told that him and Nielsen were pretty close in the one year that they worked together in Atlanta. I think if you can bring Gray in as, like, assistant head coach slash, like, senior defensive analyst or even, like, passing game coordinator, I think that's a home run addition to the staff and much farther along than where they were last year. Yeah, I think Gray was a name that, like, when we were first kind of, like, looking at the potential candidates, he was one that was kind of, like, an under-the-radar name that could actually end up being a really good hire. So I think to be able to get him – and Nielsen on the same same staff definitely sounds like a home run. And again, not that I have any insert insider knowledge of my own, but I have seen slash heard from like various league people, not just yourself, that like the two of them are pretty close knit, and that no one would be surprised. Like not just Jacksonville, but like I think people were just kind of expecting that where wherever Nielsen ended up, Gray would likely follow. So yeah, it's a good note. Yeah. All right, buddy. Well. We'll be back next week, you know, sometime. Sorry about your questions. Life happens. Like and subscribe. Get bulky bold. All that good stuff. Thank <laughs> you guys for joining us for the 87th episode of the Jaguar Report podcast. I'm John Shipley, my friend and co-host Gus Logue. Gus, you got anything else for us? See you next week. All right. Sounds good, Buckeye.